I'm Ryan Freeman, and you're listening to Workshop. Sal Patel is the new managing editor at Shopify and is based in Toronto, Canada. But before recently going to Shopify, he worked at the Toronto International Film Festival, or TIFF, as the managing digital content producer for five years. He oversaw strategy, production, and distribution of TIFF's digital studio content, which includes editorial, podcasts, video, social, and photography. He grew TIFF's audience by 66% and engagement by a whopping 1,700% just in 15 months by executing creative ideas and partnerships with Apple, CNN, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter. So me being a filmmaker, I'm extremely excited to be speaking with Sal Patel. You're at a transitional time in your career right now, where you recently transitioned from a job rubbing elbows with the celebrities at TIFF, and now you're at Shopify as the managing editor. What has that transition been like? Uh, It's been interesting. It's happening right now (laughs) as we're speaking. Uh, I am uh, officially on day six at Shopify. Mm. Um, uh, What I could definitely say is that, uh, you know, working in the not-for-profit world for five and a half years at TIFF um, was uh, an incredible experience, uh, but you get very used to certain aspects of not-for-profits and, and, and what that whole world is like. Um, as somebody who worked most recently in content production, uh, the the biggest, I mean, the, the challenge is also uh, something that, um, you know, inspires creativity in the not-for-profit world. Our budgets were so small, Mm. uh, but that also meant that we had to be super creative about Mm. how we built audiences, how we created content, how we reached people. Um, And um, I'm still figuring out what uh, things at Shopify uh, are gonna look like. Mm. And, uh, but uh, I imagine that as a tech company that has, uh, you know, a over a billion dollar valuation on the market, the, that the budget constraints of our of TIFF, which was a $45 million revenue per year kind of company, um, it'll be a very different thing. Mm. And uh, so I'm excited. I'm glad that I have sort of the foundation of like working and, and creating stuff with almost nothing because uh, mm-hmm. I think it's harder to do the opposite. <laughs> um, yeah. Come from a place where you have all the resources and, and have to go and, and uh, produce on nothing. So yeah, it was, it was definitely good training, but, uh, yeah, that's like something that I'm wrapping my head around. The other thing is, um, uh, TIFF was, uh, the difference has felt like going from high school to university. Um, in that, that like by the time you're uh, in grade 12 of high school, you are, you're like, I'm, I'm the king of this castle. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the king of this school. I've been here for four years, I'm one of the oldest kids around. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, high school is like, is small. It's like 300 people or whatever. So at TIFF, I was by no means the king of the castle. I was like several, several <laughs> ranks uh, below uh, the head of the company, but I'd been there for a while and it was like 250 to 300 people on the staff. And when you've been there for a while and it's that small, you get to know everybody really well. Um, whereas, now being at Shopify, uh, I'm coming in and it's like the first day of university where I'm like, 
holy shit, this place is so big. <laughs> there are 4,500 staff at Shopify globally. Mm. Um, the Toronto office is spread out over three different office spaces. Uh, I'm getting lost every time I go to the bathroom because I can't find my way back. The floor <laughs> is like so yeah. big and um, yeah, lots of new faces. And I, 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 I've barely spoken to the same person twice <laughs> since I've been there in six days. So yeah, that's another thing. It's just, you know, that adjustment is, is another big thing for me right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, Tiff, do any specific projects stand out to you? Um, looking back now where your budget was small or constrained and you had to think as creatively as possible, is there any specific projects that do stand out? Yeah, I think one of the first challenges that was handed to me when we when, when I started on the team, and that was about three years ago now, um, was that Instagram is one of the most important platforms, uh, in, you know, in, in digital media at this point, uh, our, and our Instagram following was around 10,000, 11,000. So it was, it was, it was sizable, but it was, um, it, in relative terms to the size of brand that we are, or that we were, you know, at TIFF, yeah. um, and also relative to, uh, other festivals like Sundance, Tribeca, Cannes, um, other uh, other organizations in the not-for-profit arts space like MoMA or uh, the Met, you know, places like that. Even AGO, um, we were we were just uh, reaching far less people, and so there's there this big challenge around how to grow an audience um, and do so without spend without, mm-hmm. you know, putting money behind, uh, boosting posts behind reaching audiences uh, on that platform. And I think, you know, n- now when I look at the, the audience today, it's, uh, I think around like 130,000. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we added over a hundred thousand followers with like that percentage growth is like, I, I can't even do that math, but, um, yeah. like substantial growth in three years. Um, and that's on what I think of as the most important social platform uh, today. And I think that's something that I'm like uh, very proud of, and especially in terms of like how we drove that. So I think we took a very specific, we, we, we got a very specific idea of like the voice and tone that we wanted to put across on Instagram. Uh, we presented TIFF um, in a very editorial way as a magazine. If you look at TIFF's feed, it doesn't feel branded. It feels really, mu- it feels very much like a celebration of beautiful images from film and cinema history mm-hmm. of uh, the really uh, amazing people who were behind those beautiful images. Um, and we did a lot of storytelling around, you know, and cont- and contextualizing of these beautiful images. So we would, you know, always share facts and stories and insights about these creators. So I thought like that was a really good start. The next step was how can we introduce our own original content into that? And, um, or even if it's not our own original content, original content of some kind. Um, and that's where we came up with the idea to, uh, launch a film festival on Instagram. Yes. Yes. And, um, so that's something that I think like, if I were to look back at my five and a half years at TIFF and the three years in particular in digital media, mm-hmm. um, 
that's the thing that I'm most proud of uh, that we worked on. It was uh, it, it was something that you know I cooked up with the director of the digital studio, uh, Jody Shakru, and we we worked together on this concept uh, early on, just saying like, what if we asked filmmakers uh, just like put a challenge out to this really creative community that mm-hmm. lives on Instagram um, that are already like elevating the global sort of aesthetic palette um, oh, yeah, totally. uh, through uh, what they post and what they share. Like what if we asked them to take that same approach that they're applying to photography, to film and to video and, um, and share their stories. And then from everything they share, we curate a selection of that. We do it in the same way that a festival would work. So uh, it takes place over 10 days. You have a few screenings, quote unquote, per day. So, you know, one matinee, one afternoon, one evening kind of thing. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was just a pure experiment. We put together mm. an amazing jury. Ava DuVernay was on the jury. Um, uh, Priyanka Chopra was on the jury. Um, Xavier Dolan was was on there the first year. So uh, these, these really amazing filmmaking voices. Um, and we put this call out out. Um, we partnered with Instagram and they loved the idea. They loved that we were inspiring filmmaking on the platform. Mm. And, uh, and so they're like that partnership turned into, uh, something great and something that also helped us build our audience, that Mm -hmm. big objective that kind of kickstarted all of this because what we couldn't do in terms of spend they could help us with. Oh, yeah. mm. So, you know, they gave us ad credits and, and coupons <laughs> to promote the festival. Yeah. All of a sudden we had ads ru- running in market promoting the fest- the the Instagram mm. film festival, but it was with like Tiff's handle. So people were coming back, liking and yeah. following the page. And it it also became this great, uh, this, this great uh, organic um, yeah. build moment for the platform. Yeah, so through being creative, you're able to kind of spark a very natural partnership. So that's mm-hmm. definitely one big takeaway from that specific story um, for other artists or, you know, creative entrepreneurs is finding partnerships that kind of make sense where you, you're bo- it's a win-win for both parties. Um, totally. I mean, I think, I think that, that's huge. Yeah. That was exactly it with, with that partnership is that TIFF was looking for a way to bring cinematic storytelling to the digital world. Mm-hmm. And Instagram was looking for a way to, uh, to, to encourage people to use video mm. on their platform. That was brand new. Makes sense. Uh, <laughs> like, where, like three years ago when we launched this, they just went from 15 seconds to 60 seconds oh, nice, uh, yeah. for in-feed video. And so that this came at the perfect time where they were like, yeah, we want people to start using and taking advantage of that extended video length. And we were like, and we want to actually work with the shortest form video that we've ever worked with as mm. an organization. Yeah. And, but we want to reach people in the, in the digital space. So it was a win-win for both sides. So the partnership made a lot of sense. Do you have any internal insight as far as Instagram videos goes? Like, is it just going to be sticking around 60 seconds or do you know if they're exploring longer formats? I think... So I have no uh, internal insights in terms of uh, the, the the core app and mm-hmm. the, the sort of in-feed posts. Mm-hmm. Um, they launched IGTV. Right, yeah. And on IGTV, they're going up to 10 minutes uh, in vertical video. 
up to 60 minutes if you have an a, hour yeah wow. so there's up to 60 minutes if you're a verified account oh, okay, okay yeah so so unverified accounts get up to 10 minutes verified get up to 60 that's a vertical video mm. um i think that what we're going to see this is just pure prognostication yeah. but but i think what we're going to see is more of an integration between igtv and the core instagram app over mm. the next year um so some of that longer form vertical video is going to make its way more organically into your Instagram story section right. and stuff like that. Or your main feed or something like that. I think the main feed is going to kind of stay where it's at. Yeah. I okay. don't see a, like, I don't know what you see on, on, on the platform, but I, I see a decreasing use in, in main feed stuff. Mm. People have started to use their, their feeds more preciously where they're like, the feed is meant to be like, you arrive at my profile and these are nine, this is a nine yeah. photo mood board of who I am. More considered. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, whereas like stories is like sort of your everyday publishing platform mm -hmm. and vertical video is, is, is I think for the everyday, like how people are going to start publishing more. Um, it's just right now that the missing piece is just uh, like how they integrate IGTV, which is doing longer format into mm -hmm. the core app because people don't like leaving apps. Right. You know, like yeah, yeah. if you're in Instagram, you don't want to swipe up to go to YouTube. Um, you want to just stay in Instagram yeah. and you don't, you don't want to go to Facebook. You don't want to go to Twitter. Um, so, you know, I, I think um, that, that that's the main challenge that they're mm. probably going to, I can see them addressing that in the next year and also bringing in addressing it, bringing that functionality together so that, mm -hmm they kind of, they reduce redundancy and they have everything in one app mm -hmm. almost, yeah. Man, the Instagram stories really killed uh, Snapchat, eh? You it guys, did. were you guys on Snapchat? We were on Snapchat. Okay. It killed Snapchat for Tiff. Like, I could tell you that. Like, we stopped using Snapchat after yeah. Instagram stories were introduced. Uh, mm -hmm. We phased it out over the course of like six months to a year. And... Um, did you see your traffic go down? Like, just as far as your views and the engagement? So you're like, hey, we should... Or it's just easier to have it all on Instagram? Like so, what was that kind of thought process? Like? So I think like the the biggest thing for us was that we were never really able to get any meaningful data around um, our Snapchat stories to begin with. Like Snapchat didn't offer uh, analytics. Um, and so, and, and I think that was a very intentional decision. So it's not like a knock to them or anything. Mm -hmm. I think they were like, we don't want to be an influencer platform or uh, like... Snapchat is about organic peer-to-peer -peer sharing. It's about closed social groups and, and it's kind of like WhatsApp with vertical video. Um, so it's really about finding like, you know, you have a community of like five or six friends and you just want to be talking to them, right. um, uh, you know, 50 times a day. <laughs> and, and like that, yeah. th that's what that was, that was the core function of Snapchat. And I think for that reason, they never introduced some of those tools that, Instagram and Facebook had, but that meant that for us as a brand, it was like really hard to like measure the success of anything we were publishing there um, to begin with. And so when Instagram started offering that functionality, um, we were like, the only reason to stick around on Snapchat is if we've decided that uh, 12 to 24 is, or not even 12 to 24, 12 to 18 is uh, a key demographic for, for us. And I think where we were having a lot of success was 18 to 24, 25 to right. 34. Like, like 
the next level, the two next sort of demos up mm-hmm. from Snapchat and all of those people are on Instagram. I'm curious, like what did the internal conversation look like at TIFF when you guys were thinking of, I don't want to say making filmmaking more accessible to the general public because anyone can make a film mm-hmm. um, if you're a filmmaker and submit it to TIFF. Um, but thinking um, TIFF is kind of seen as this like prestigious top five festivals of the world, right? Film mm-hmm. festivals of the world. Um, so what was like that internal dialogue like at TIFF when you're thinking of doing the Instagram partnership mm. with the one minute, um, you know, uh, videos as far as just making it, um, yeah, maybe more like accessible in a sense or, yeah. or like, a, yeah. Yeah. No, it's a really good mean? question. I think it's a, TIFF is a, uh, an institution which has a long history. It's, uh, you know, 40 plus years old. Um, and a, as an organization, it celebrates, the tradition uh, and the history of cinema um, every day, you know, mm-hmm. through Cinematech programming mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that. Um, so the idea of uh, building relationships with new filmmakers is very much in the DNA of the organization. The idea of building relationships with digital first filmmakers or uh, filmmakers who are, who are working on on like mobile phone platforms mm-hmm. and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that was brand new to the organization. I think to answer your question, it depends on who, it depends on who you ask and, and, and <laughs> on the community. People feel differently. People felt a little okay. bit differently in, okay. in, in different groups. Uh, it was almost everything at TIFF that like reaches a public audience. Um, and that that's been curated goes through the programming team, the programming team at TIFF, curates all of that stuff. Uh, the Instagram film festival was programmed and curated by the digital team. That was like a first. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, it was partly based on the fact that this was a digital medium that it was all being going out on partly because the programming team maybe had a little bit less of an interest in it. Uh, like, Year one, it's we not were, their thing. It's, it's not like, their thing. Yeah. yeah. So year one, we were like, "Do you want to be involved in the selection of stuff?" And they were like, "We're good." Yeah, um, okay. <laughs> but by year three, like so, this this past year, um, they were all uh, or that you know our selection committee was I think probably uh, thirty to forty percent made up of programmers. Mm. Um, so I think you know with each year that we did it, and they. An understanding started to grow and build around uh, what this was and how it interacted with like the world of cinema. I, I think people then came around and they were like, "Okay, yeah, no, like yeah. I I get what this is now, and I'm I'm down to support it and and be involved in in whatever way I can." So yeah, because what I'm kind of thinking is like the the great divide between digital and film mm-hmm. <laughs> in the film industry, right? Some people are super old school. So that's where I was kind of trying to like navigate, like how would people be feeling towards now? It's like, you can just shoot a film, call it a film on your phone, right? Totally. And upload it to Instagram. And now you're a contender at TIFF or for that specific yeah. <laughs> partnership. I think one of the most interesting things for me this year was, um, as we started talking more and more about, about vertical video, um, we 
uh, we had a meeting between uh, our senior team at TIFF and the senior team, uh, or, you know, yeah, actually the senior team at Instagram. Mm. Um, and they were curious. They were like, what do you guys think about vertical, about nine by 16 as an aspect ratio? Instagram asked you guys. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and um, it was a really interesting conversation that followed. And, uh, you know, our outgoing CEO, Piers Handling, was was there in the room. And, um, you know, he kind of spoke to the idea that in the history of cinema, he was like, actually, cinema comes from more of like a one-by-one one aspect ratio yeah. in its origins, you know? He's like, what Instagram was kind of presenting out the gate is what cinema was also presenting out the gate. Um, and he was like, you know, to me over the years, aspect ratios have changed so many times. Mm. Uh, it's really though about storytelling and storytelling in a visual format with motion, you know, that can take place on screens of different sizes of different aspect ratios. Mm -hmm. So he's like, it, it, it doesn't matter. Um, where you see it, what it is. Uh, and so I, I liked, I mean, I was like, you know, Piers is, uh, 70 years old, um, or something. I, I think he's around that age. Mm. Um, my first job at TIFF was basically as his EA, uh, as his exec assistant. So, um, I know him well, and I, I thought it was like really inspiring that, you know, close to his retirement, he, somebody who's like spent, you know, 40, 50 years of his life working in film. Um, he he thinks about film and cinema uh, in such a broad way, mm. you know? And he's like, he's totally open to, you know, whatever next evolution, even if it is involves nine by 16. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think the heart of cinema or film, and, and it, it's all about creating a connection, right? Mm -hmm. And portraying new perspectives and, and storytelling so we can learn from the past and take those stories and lessons and move on into the future. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I think that that is one of the things that social media obviously offers is that connectivity, right? Um, so I think that's pretty cool that like he made those two connections. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> And yeah. Uh, that's like what it's all about. Um, so I... Uh, in doing research for this interview, my friend, mm -hmm. uh, I was creeping your LinkedIn and I uh, wanted to pull out a little blurb that stood out to me okay. from your, your bio. I'm just going to read it. Sure. Then we can talk about it. Okay. <laughs> um, so this is it. You say, I'm interested in the intersections of art and tech and constantly thinking about how technology can broaden and deepen people's connections to art mm -hmm. and artists. Why do you feel that way? Or, or is that something that you've always kind of been passionate about, about creating that connection or kind of like using a tool and how that tool can connect people to art. Is that something that, where yeah. did that passion kind of come from? So technology totally changed the way that I was able to engage with art. Um, I think that, you know, you and I, I'm like taking a guess at your age that you're around my age. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, we grew up, uh, we, we've grown up to see both eras of access to art. Um, and I think like when I was growing up, there was a lot of, uh, to, to access a lot of forms of art, you had to, to pay a lot of money or you had to be in certain centers and cities and, 
and hubs and things like that. Mm. Um, and you know, I, I didn't have any siblings growing up, so I'll start with music. Um, for me to get access to music and to find out what was cool and what was interesting, um, I didn't really know how to do it. Like I listened to the radio, mm, you know, mm -hmm. and the radio and much music were, were basically like what they had yeah. was what I thought that that was my entire worldview of what, what music was. My parents were both immigrants. Um, all of the music they listened to was tied back to India. And so, you know, that I, I was like, that's, I know that music mm -hmm. and I can get recommendations from them about that. <laughs> Great but sense. like, yeah. but like no one, none of my friends here know anything about that and they don't care about that. And I was like, if I want to, like, I, I was trying to, it didn't have the same, it, you, you know, I, there was no resonance of that music mm -hmm. uh, with like the community that I was growing up in and around. So for me, that all changed when Napster came on the scene, right? right. And all of a sudden I was like, I've heard about this group called the Beatles. Like literally, I, that, I was like, I've heard about the Beatles. What do they sound like? And I, I searched, them. searched them and then I downloaded every album by the Beatles and I listened to the Beatles. I've heard about Led Zeppelin. What's that like? Mm. And I just downloaded all this stuff. And I just like started, like my, my discovery was totally based on my intellectual curiosity at that point, right? Mm. So I just like, I went down all these holes and would just like discover so much all the time. Um, and I like the same thing happened with film when I got to uh, undergrad, I went to Queens and there was a file sharing service called DC plus plus. Yep. Uh, <laughs> same with Western. Oh, okay. Western, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like a lot of the Ontario schools had yeah. DC plus plus like kudos to the engineers out there that like, <laughs> like, you know, nerded out and built this oh, thing yeah. for everyone else to benefit. That's so funny. But like, I gave myself like a lesson in cinema history through DC plus plus because people just had everything and you could just go and watch like all these movies that you'd heard about and things like that, you know? So like it democratized access mm -hmm. to, to, to art at a time in my life where I was like, I have zero money to spend on this, but like I, I have all, like I have as much time as I want to give to, to taking it all in and appreciating it. And through that, I like formed a sense of like what my taste was, what my interests were. Um, and each, you know, film and music like spawned interest in other art forms as well for me from there. Right. So mm -hmm. like, you know, I saw a movie about ballet and I got into, I was like, oh, like I, I'm interested in dance now. I want to see more stuff to do with dance or, um, you know, so it kind of extends out from there. Mm -hmm. um, I think so for me, it's always been super important to look at the next ways in which technology can uh, help unlock that passion and interest in the arts, particularly why that's important for me is because I think for uh, kids who are, um, who, who come from a similar background and context to me, whose parents are immigrants, who don't have a basis or a, a grounding in, in the culture that they're sort of, mm. uh, that they're in, and who maybe don't have siblings either who have, have started to figure this out and can share some of those learnings with mm -hmm. them. Your learning then has to come from other sources and the internet is like the best source for that. That's how I learned, you know, like I, I think like my ability to, to assimilate as a child of immigrants uh, was based on access to arts and culture that was became easier and easier as I grew up. Um, and so 
I think that, you know, for, for me, that is a hugely important thing. And then also like the next step after assimilation was inspiration and, um, art for me is inspiring. It's, uh, it's how we drive social change. It's, um, it's how we drive education. Um, and so I, I think, you know, increasing people's interest and access to that stuff mm-hmm. is, is so important. And so that's like, you know, that that's where I've tried to spend um, most of my career. You, mm-hmm. you know, before working at TIFF, I, I was a banker, but I spent my time outside of banking, kind of working uh, with, you know, I worked with a band uh, that was playing like locally in Toronto mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And I would write for music blogs and, and things like that. So I've always been interested in like how I can like play with these digital tools that are available and share things with people through them. Well, now like going into 2019, do you think it's almost like too diluted? Cause that's, that's something that I'm thinking about. Um, well, I guess like even with Instagram feeds, um, how, like you mentioned, a lot of the, when you land on someone's profile, it's kind of like a curated nine, mm-hmm. you know, photos and stuff like that. Um, but as far as just like browsing, um, I, I'd, I'll i go out on a limb here and say like, I, I'm sure a lot of people will search Instagram for inspiration and there's just so much out there where it's kind of hard to know what's good. You know, like I, I was, I just searched, um, I did like a geotag the other day and I, looked up Toronto and just like want to see, you know, I was actually looking for stories for like a documentary or something. Mm. Sometimes I, I find interesting people like on Facebook or Instagram. Um, but yeah, so I, I clicked on the geotag for Toronto and it was like, man, are, is everyone in Toronto like a professional photographer? It was <laughs> like every photo is like beautiful and edited well yeah. and look good where I find now it's like, it's harder when it's harder to stand out, but it's also kind of harder to like shape your taste necessarily or kind of like just as far as like using that as a tool or like the tools that people have now to kind of find media. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Like, yeah, no, it's a really good point. I think like, uh, sorry. Yeah. It's a really good point. I think there's been like a big, um, movement as, as these tools have become more accessible, there's also been a a point of saturation around Mm -hmm. content where there's, uh, there's so much of it mm. and it's all, um, especially with mediums like Instagram, there's like, there's this term like, uh, that we have now, which is like Instagrammable or, um, <laughs> yeah. and it, it's like a, it's an adjective or it's a, it's a word that has like a, a aesthetic value. And there's like an aesthetic value that's assigned to it where it's like, there, you all like, people know what that means. They mm-hmm. know what, it, what they know what like a photo composed for Instagram is supposed to look and feel like. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a problem with that because uh, we're moving, like you said, towards like a monoculture around aesthetics. And what was most interesting about like when I was discovering music on Napster is that there was no, there was no, like there was, it was a brief moment where we'd come out of monoculture, sorry, we'd, we, where we'd come out of monoculture that was driven by, the established sort of institutions and studios uh, to like all of a sudden it's possible to be an indie artist. G- gates and, are open. Yeah. yeah. The gates are open. <laughs> and like you've got the, you've flattened the whole 
sort of creative communities and it's all out there and, and there's no, there's no one sort of aesthetic or style. Mm. And, and I think like photography is certainly going through a moment of monoculture mm. uh, that's that Instagram is propagating. And I think that's problematic. Um, and, and, and I think like in, Instagram's the, the idea of what's Instagrammable or what is, uh, you know, aesthetically made for Instagram has evolved like each year with that, that platform has been around. Like, it's not like the photos today look like they did six years ago or five years ago. It's changing, but, um, it's, it's all, it's just kind of been more and more like monoculture. Like you said, I don't think that that's necessarily happened with all art though, as a result of, uh, mm. uh, of, of these tools and of the access. I think, um, you know, music is interesting. Uh, I know you're a big music fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so am I, I think we've come out of this era where there's like a similar thing to Instagram where there's like SoundCloud rap, for example. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a term. Yeah. And it has, again, it, there's like aesthetic value that's, a, that's assigned to what that means. And people know what a SoundCloud rapper looks like. They've got like certain tattoos on their face yeah. <laughs> and they've thing, got yeah. certain colored hair. <laughs> And they've got, and, and they know what their songs kind of sound like. Mm-hmm. So there is that that's happened, um, on platforms like that. Spotify is like basically dictating the taste of the entire world through their playlists mm-hmm. and, and through mm-hmm. the placement of those playlists when Drake drops a new album, uh, and every page that you click on, on Spotify has like a different ad for Drake and you yeah. can't. You, there was like, when Scorpion dropped, there was almost no way to not listen to Scorpion if yeah. you were on Spotify. He's like the most streamed artist of 2018, and, but it's like, they kind of made it. But then, Not yeah. to knock, you know, no, his music I, or anything, but you know, it's like, but yeah, like they're what, propagating it. Yeah, you know? so it's, it, it's different when these services uh, are driven by financial, uh, by a financial imperative yeah. at the end of the day. And I think that's the big difference is that like, tech can broaden and deepen people's uh, relationships with art um, when that tech was like sort of in its pure stage. <laughs> so like when Instagram was in its pure stage, when it was like VC funded and it had no revenue objectives, um, you were just seeing people communicate who they were yeah. in a pretty authentic way. Um, and there was no like common aesthetics around how that was done. There was so many different types of photography that were being shared. Um, and when Napster was like, you know, fresh on the scene, like access to music was like so broad and you're getting all kinds of different stuff. Now that we've got like Spotify and we've got, you know, Instagram and its current state that's changed. I think there's, I think there's tech mediums that are out there that still provide an exciting opportunity for art to, to reach people and for that art to reach people authentically, Mm. um, and in an unfiltered way. And I think what I'm interested in has, has always been like finding what that next platform is or what that Mm. next medium or style of delivery is. So, uh, yes, my, my work has always had me working on the very established platforms. Um, but even within those, it's like, how do you, how do you break the code a little bit? How do you work within Instagram uh, and present short form filmmaking there? You know, mm-hmm. so like the Instagram Film Festival, 
no one was doing that. That's not how that platform was really being used. But we were like, why not? Um, you know, technically this this platform allows for us to do something like this. Mm-hmm. So let's just let's engineer this into it. Um, and I think you know that so that there's one opportunity is to work with the existing platforms and present things in a different way on them. Mm-hmm. And the other is to look for new platforms and 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 new new ways to uh to to share that art. Have you seen anything recently as far as like new platforms go? Well, so not a new platform, but another one that I, I did an experiment with uh right before leaving TIFF was uh Facebook watch parties. Um so I think Facebook watch parties are one of the biggest opportunities for uh, people who believe in uh, f- traditional film going. So, can you explain it? Sorry, I've actually I don't know what. Okay, I'm gonna explain. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm gonna take this from the top. So, all right. <laughs> so, um, I'll start with what what I mean by traditional film going, which is that like traditional film going is I go to a movie theater, I buy a ticket. Um, I watch the movie in a cinema with a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear the laughs, I hear the cries. Mm-hmm. Um, the audience experience with that film is part of the experience of seeing the film. Of course, yeah. Um, and then the movie's over. And before I leave the movie theater, I'm standing around in the lobby for a few minutes and I'm talking to my friends about what I saw. I'm hearing what other people's yeah. reactions a little bit. Maybe I'll get into a conversation with them about it. Um, and then we'll kind of like make our way out the escalator slowly <laughs> and like kind of keep that conversation going for a little bit. Right. So those are like a lot of what I talked about there in a Netflix world. That's like, that's not how people watch things anymore on our, like the, the average person is watching something on Netflix by themselves or with one other person. Um, it's a very insular experience. Often it's like headphones on or something like that. Um, and there's no feedback loop. So you're not hearing other people react to it. So if, if you read a situation as being funny mm-hmm. um, and you're in a movie theater and no one else laughed, <laughs> that gives you a moment to be like, why do I think that's funny? Am right. I right? Are they right? Um, are, is this a multidimensional moment? Like what, what's going on here? <laughs> And, uh, but when you're watching it by yourself, you just see it as what, whatever you felt it was. Mm -hmm. And then, and then once it's over, Netflix immediately serves you the next thing. Um, and it's like, oh, watch the next episode, watch, watch the next movie. Mm -hmm. And so your time spent unpacking what you've seen is, is so limited. And to me, I'm like, that is the downside of the binge generation. Right. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Park that for a second. Now let's go to, (laughs) let's go to Facebook watch parties. So. Watch parties were introduced um, as a way for Facebook to kind of compete in the vlogging space. Um, so it's kind of taking like the idea of live video um, and uh, encouraging uh, creators to to use Facebook a little bit more uh, because creators have been like using Instagram. Um, they haven't ever really latched onto Facebook as a, as a publishing platform. So... I think they were like, this is our opportunity to allow creators to come on here and share something. So it's like, you know, examples of what they've been promoting are things like, um, you know, a cooking class. So it's like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to do a watch party where I'm going to share my chocolate chip cookie recipe and, um, 
and it's like scheduled as an event on your page. Everybody who follows your page gets like a little notification Mm -hmm. that they're about to have a watch party. Come and watch along with a bunch of other people and have a conversation about what you're seeing um, Mm. and, uh, you know, engage with this community around it. Um, Where I see the opportunity is is to share traditional film through that. Uh, So, you know, there's a reason that Facebook is getting into the world of original content right now. Yeah. They have like a bunch of TV series that they've already put out and um, there's more to come and feature films and stuff like that. Um, but I think what they're going to be able to achieve with watch parties uniquely to like any other platform right now is the ability to stream a piece of content. Um, and what we did with the watch party that we piloted at TIFF my idea was let's try and replicate like a TIFF screening at a festival, but let's do it online. So we had, we had a shorts program um, where it was 10 short films uh, that were made by uh, newly landed uh, or basically like uh, female immigrants in Toronto. And they were, they made short films about their experience as immigrants here. Um, and so they, this was a program that screened in our building um, and they played the shorts back to back and they had the filmmakers there. I said, let's do the same thing online where we, I cut together all the films. So they, pl- they, they played one after the other. I had the whole thing introduced by the person who moderated it in cinema. Um, so she introduced what you were about to watch um, and encouraged people to hop into the comments and then watching along with you were the filmmakers. So they all logged on from their oh, own Facebook pages. Cool, nice. They watched. And so as you saw something, you're like, huh, what does this mean? The filmmakers there and answering your questions. Um, Very cool. How did, how did you do the choreography for this? Oh, uh, the choreographer is watching too. So I'll get her to like answer your questions about that. And so they would kind of tag each other in and they would all talk. And, they, and then everybody was kind of supporting each other in this too. So they were like you know, show some love for this filmmaker and that mm-hmm. filmmaker and that kind of thing. It was a, it, it felt like the closest thing that I've seen and been able to sort of achieve in the digital space mm-hmm. that replicates a festival experience where mm-hmm. you're bringing people together, you're seeing the emotional reactions because on Facebook now you can react with like a ha ha, mm-hmm. with a wow, with a sad, with an angry. Um, so you're getting those reactions Mm. Um, you're seeing what people writ large feel about it as, as, as the video goes, Mm -hmm. you're able to interact with the filmmakers. Um, and you're, and then once something's over, you're able to unpack your thoughts and talk to other people about what their thoughts were and stuff like Mm. that. So I think there's a huge opportunity there. That's a really exciting platform for me is, is, uh, like, obviously I, I use Netflix and I love Netflix. Uh, but Netflix is passive, uh, is a passive viewing experience. And I think that what we really need as a counterbalance to that is an active digital viewing experience. I've seen like a few um, live videos, but I feel like what you're describing works in like small batches mm-hmm. as far as people viewing. Cause I've seen some of these live videos and it's just like the comment section is just going mm-hmm. bonkers, right? Like you can't even follow any kind of thread. Mm-hmm. So, cause you're equating it to like a, an actual like viewing event or watching a yeah. film, right? Where you're limited, 
limited to, I don't know, a hundred people or whatever the size of the, the- mm-hmm. theater is. Right. Um, you're right. Once it gets you know to like I mean? Once it gets to thousands of people watching, it kind of taints like you can't yeah, actually have or follow along to a dialogue with no. a director or something. So I wonder if there is like a way of like capping it because that would be like a pretty nice evolution to Netflix, like a Netflix live. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's more like um, almost like you have to get like an e-ticket or something yeah. and like invite it or, you know, sign up or something. So I think one of the ways that uh, Facebook is using watch parties is that uh, you can spawn off your own party from like an a, like a, a larger party basically. Okay. So I could say like I've got ten friends who are also watching this, and instead of being part of the hundreds of thousands, oh, true. Yeah. we'll just like branch <laughs> off and we'll More, have yeah. our own experience here. Um, and we can see what's happening in the main thread. We could see that like a bunch of people are like the comments are blowing up over this one thing that just happened, but like we don't need to like be drowned out by that uh, mm. commentary either. We can just have our own viewing experience on the side. So I think that's something that they either have already or they're okay. looking at. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like the- It gets crazy. Yeah. It gets crazy. And what, <laughs> what worked really nicely about that first experiment that I did for TIFF on my way out was that um, the size of the uh, live viewing audience was was like probably, it was in that sweet spot. Um, it was like as many people as you'd have in a theater, yeah. uh, and not, you know, as many people as you could possibly reach on the internet. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it can, it can get complicated for sure. So what else were you in charge of when you were working at TIFF? Yeah. So I was- worked, on. uh, I mean, by the end of my time at TIFF, I was, uh, overseeing the distribution of content through social. So that's why I've been talking so much about mm-hmm. Facebook, Instagram, et cetera. Um, I worked on uh, in a sort of creative capacity with our video producing teams where I would support um, chase production, pre-production, um, and in some cases the actual production in, uh, of videos. Uh, the way in which I would work on videos is basically uh, working with some of my colleagues there to identify uh, guests that we want to have uh, on camera. Mm-hmm. Um, then I would work with, uh, either by myself or with others to, um, research those guests, write the questions for the interviews that we'd be doing with them, um, and figure out what kind of video series it fits in, uh, in our overall channel strategy. Um, and then I would conduct the interviews sometimes, uh, in our video studio, um, uh, and then at the sort of post-production phase when our video editors were working on uh, putting together uh, pieces based on these interviews, um, you know, the edits, uh, I would occasionally give notes on those and stuff like that. So that's I, I worked in sort of that creative capacity with the video team. Um, and then I uh, was also one of uh, two producers uh, for our podcast network, uh, which is uh, another uh, project that uh, sort of oversaw for almost, yeah, basically since its inception, I, I, I had a role in it and then oversaw it directly for the past, uh, year. So, uh, the TIFF podcast network was TIFF long take, uh, was their, uh, flagship show. And, um, we also have TIFF, TIFF uncut, which is more of an archival channel, which is made up of, uh, uh, conversations that are just recorded from onstage events that have happened at TIFF over the years. Long Take was the main project though that we worked on and it was a weekly show, two hosts, two producers, 
Um, and for that, I would once again do the chase production around um, deciding which guests we were going to kind of go after um, and then trying to lock them down. Uh, and then I'd work with uh, the hosts and the, uh, our other producer uh, to kind of research, write the questions, come up with the angle for the interview. Um, and uh, yeah, so that, that, that was my work on that. Yeah, something that I actually... Well, I knew it was a lot of work, but I didn't realize how much work it would actually be is producing my own show right. for a workshop where it's like, um, you got to find these people, you know, you got to find a way mm-hmm. to um, relate to them, to tell their story. You have to find a way to actually contact these guests um, and kind of shape the the arc of the show in general um, and also bringing, you know, relevant guests and topics to the podcast mm-hmm. <laughs> and to the listeners. I, I, I knew it was a lot of work, but you know, I didn't really expect it to be this much work. And I'm sure hopefully I'm trying to find my own kind of way through it, my, my own efficiencies. Um, but like how much time did you actually spend just to give people like an idea on producing a podcast? Yeah. Um, I think I spent personally, uh, around, Oh, I'm trying to think through my time. Uh, so an hour, well, we always aimed for an hour, but it was more like two hours, uh, that we'd spend, uh, in a weekly meeting where we'd kind of go through, I'd walk our hosts and other producer through all of the, um, you know, the, the pipeline. Mm -hmm. So here's the people that I'm chasing. Here's the people that are locked for the upcoming weeks. Um, here's the overall schedule of what we're putting out. So let's say like uh, uh, an hour and a half to two hours on that each week. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd spend about um, two hours per week, um, maybe, yeah, two hours, two and, a, two and a half hours each week, just uh, chasing. So just yeah, emailing, emailing people, <laughs> the correspondence going back stuff. and forth. Yeah, that kind of thing. There's because TIFF is uh, such a large organization that interfaces with so many guests across so many different areas. Mm-hmm. The process around even getting to the stage where you start chasing is pretty intense. So you have to like first come up with your list of people who you, who are your dream list. Mm. Then you go to a guest share meeting and like everybody's like, here's who I'm chasing. Here's who I'm chasing for all their different things. Mm. And you make sure that, you know, three of us aren't going after the same person at any given time. Um, and if we are, can we coordinate our ass and that kind of thing? Mm. So there's just like this whole sort of bureaucracy, like I, I'll yeah, call yeah. it bureaucracy. Um, it was necessary, but it was like, uh, that whole aspect. So that was probably, you know, a half hour to an hour each week as well. Um, and then, uh, just doing research and question writing. That's another like half hour to hour of work per week as well. So like at least a day a week was yeah, dedicated. Yeah, for sure. And then on top of that, I was also managing the creation of all of our ads for, for the podcast. So um, at present, the majority of the ads that we were doing were uh, re- recorded in-house um, and they're promoted, uh, they're, they're promoting TIFF's own stuff. So it was like an ad for a new release that's opening up at TIFF Bell Lightbox or something like mm-hmm. that. So um I would sit down with the programmer 
who was going to give, give listeners the pitch on that film or something like that. And I would, you know, like look at what they wrote. I would, uh, and then bring them into the studio, have them record, deliver that to our editor. So yeah, I mean, that's extra time as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, definitely a day of work per week. Um, uh, and some weeks more if we're, there's a, there's been a few episodes this year where I had to do pre-production work and pre-interviews because um, we wanted to make sure we were talking to the right person and they understood what we wanted to talk to them about. Right. Sometimes there was a language barrier and we I wanted to feel out how significant that would be for the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would call them and almost, you know, have like a 20 to 30 minute conversation equivalent in length to what the actual yeah, podcast pre, yeah, would be, yeah. just to make sure that like, they feel comfortable with all of it. They know where it's going. We we feel good about it. That kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. um, some episodes required a little bit more uh, than others. So yeah. Were there any guests that you had um, where you were actually like remarkably surprised at how accessible they were? Where you thought like, oh man, I would never be able to speak to Leonardo DiCaprio or whoever, right? Yeah. But then in the end, there you're surprised at how accessible they were. I say this because this one time I was trying to do um, like a, or I was trying to put together a profile documentary and I wanted to kind of shoot for the stars and I want to um, interview James Cameron mm-hmm. for this like artist film series thing that I was wow. creating. And it's like, well, James Cameron, there's no way I'm going to do it. But I'm like, hey, you know, he has Canadian roots. Might as well try. And I got as far as I, I ended up on a call with his agent pitching mm-hmm. what I wanted to do. And it's like, hey, that was one of the early, early moments in my career where I kind of realized it's like, you know, we might be up here in Canada or I might be at the time, you know, a 22 or 23 year old, you know, kid or whatever, mm-hmm. just trying to make it happen. But if I can end up on the phone with James Cameron's agent pitching this short film idea to them and he was going to go and take it to James Cameron and see if he'd be into it. Like, that's where my eyes kind of opened and my world actually opened for yeah. me um, where I'm like, Hey, you know what? These people that I thought were almost untouchable, mm-hmm. they might not be so untouchable, so to speak, or unreachable. Right. Yeah. yeah. Did you have anyone like that? Oh yeah, for it sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a lot of moments where we were like shocked that we were able to, to get certain people on the show or, you know, in the video studio, stuff like that. Um, I think, uh, in terms of people who were so down to earth that we weren't expecting to be that uh, my first interview that I ever did, it wasn't for podcast. I did it for a, a video interview. It was with uh, Charlie Kaufman and, um, I was like a, a big Charlie Kaufman fan. Mm. Uh, and it was right after Anomalisa came out and I was super nervous. I think for some reason, because of his writing style and, uh, and I watched a, like, you know, I did my prep and I watched a ton of interviews that he'd done in the past. Mm-hmm. I just thought that he was going to be, uh, very unapproachable, very, uh, a very difficult sort of subject. So I was nervous going into it. Uh, but he was really, really kind and giving. And I think, um, you know, what he and a lot of people responded to over the years, uh, in our approach at TIFF was that, um, you know, we were really approaching them as, 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 uh, people interested and appreciative of their craft. Um, mm. we weren't asking them the sort of like Hollywood fair and like kind of red carpety type questions. Yeah. 
uh, we tried really hard to stay away from like what felt like junket interview questions, what they would be asked like 20, 30 times a day. We were like, if you can find the answer to this question somewhere else, we pro- we don't want to be asking that here. Yeah. Like what's yeah. the point in yeah. this era of saturation like we were talking about before? So I think they appreciated that. They appreciated that we took the time, we did our homework. Something refreshing. That we were yeah. real fans. Yeah. Um, I think they could they could feel that, that we're, they were like, Oh, I'm sitting down. I'm not sitting down with like a journalist. I'm sitting down with a a, a real fan of of film, and um, so that was you know the Kaufman experience was great to have off the bat because that was someone who I was fully expecting to be uh, a challenge and who wasn't. Um, uh, I would say, um, who else have I, did I have myself that. Uh, because you know, the, the guys would talk to like the guys on the podcast would talk to a lot of people. Uh, but I wouldn't go in the studio for those because I, you know, we had a, my co-producer, Kyle Fulton, um, would, would always do this sort of in-studio engineering and listening and on the interviews. So I didn't do a ton of those with, with the podcast team. Um, I mean, I, I could tell you that they were all, we were all like, Nervous and not sure of what to expect with Jim Carrey when he came in. <laughs> um, you you never know what right. you're going to get with somebody like Jim Carrey, uh, especially like this new era of Jim Carrey that we're yeah. in. Yeah. Um, and uh, he came in and he was like super generous uh, and really like so uh, disarming off the bat. Like he was sitting on a beanbag chair, just like, <laughs> like next to my colleague's desk and just like shooting the shit with her and, um, and cracking jokes and stuff like that. But talking like he was just your friend, Jim, like, right. like, you know, off the bat, his, his whole personality was like very, uh, very approachable. And I think that made that interview really, really quality. One of the best, um, it's not a typical Tiff Long Take interview. Mm-hmm. It's probably the most atypical one, but one of the best ones at the same time because of just how giving he was with his time. Mm. And then like a video interview that we did where similarly two people came in uh, that we were all like pretty nervous about uh, was Idris Elba and and Kate Winslet. Uh, they both had just done a movie together uh, called The Mountains Between Us. Uh, that was last year. And... Um, we had them in for our first actor on actor conversation. So we were piloting this new format. And uh, so we were nervous about that. A, we're piloting this new format. B, uh, these people are basically like royalty uh, in, in the mm. film industry. And uh, oh yeah, they right off the bat, they were so nice, so down to earth, uh, willing to just sort of play with this format. Mm. Um, and they they kind of took it like, the way that we produced that series was that we would write out a bunch of suggested questions for them and we had them like kind of read through them in advance. And, um, they had like a brief, like, you know, three to four minutes of time to just kind of feel out the questions and be like, yeah, I feel good about this. We can talk about that. But then like they, as soon as we started rolling, they just kind of went with it and they made it their own. And that's what really makes that piece strong. And uh, is that, they use the questions as a jumping off point rather than as like a strict guide. Mm. Um, and not everyone who's done that format has necessarily done that. So, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, uh, I think to your point, um, more often than not, uh, 
people in these positions are used to being treated not like a human. Um, and so when you approach them like a human, when you approach them, period, uh, you'll be surprised how often people respond. Oh, yeah. Uh, but you gotta, you gotta put in those reps, you know, you got like, you have to just like not be precious about it and reach out to as like tons of people expecting that people are busy. It's not because people are assholes. It's because they're busy that you may not hear back from them. Um, and then once they're approached that they are actually quite approachable and Mm -hmm. they're quite, uh, personable and uh, when you approach them as a human, you know, and yeah. you relate to them on that level. So, yeah. Yeah. Right now for, for me producing workshop and finding a uh, guest for future episodes, it's just like I'm searching Instagram. And if I come across an artist, photographer, you know, whoever content producer and, and they're doing good work of high quality and obviously they're uh, successful. So you can learn from them. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, you know, immediately, Immediately, I'll, I'll either send them like a, uh, you know, a direct message or try to find their their email. But I'll just be like firing them off kind of like all day. Like any free time that I have, you know, when I'm not working on films or music or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I'm just kind of constantly sending emails because is exactly what you said. You never know who's going to come back to you, right? Yeah. It's not oh, like yeah. everyone's going to be like, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's quite the opposite. No, definitely. Um, but yeah, and, and another thing that I've, been noticing and I've noticed throughout my life and career is um, the higher up you go almost the more um, responsive people are and that is definitely um, a winning character attribute that I've noticed from those people Um, like uh, two podcast episodes ago um, with Jamie Derringer she's the founder of Design Milk oh cool Uh, yeah we we had her on the podcast and it was like a day after I reached out to her she replied and within hours, she'll respond to my emails. Like she's amazing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's like a winning attribute right there. It's mm-hmm. someone who's who's on the ball, who constantly just keeps it going, right? Yeah. I've recently been reading a lot about uh, growth mindsets mm-hmm. um, versus fixed mindsets. Okay. And uh, I don't know if you've heard these terms before, but, um, uh, and I'm not the person to necessarily define them, but I would say like definitely look them up. And like one of the qualities though around growth uh, people with growth mindsets is this idea of looking at everything as an opportunity, mm-hmm. an opportunity to develop, to learn, to grow. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's this sort of say yes kind of attitude right. um, that I, I think you're right. You know, you see in these people, it, you know, you would think that people who are like at the top of these companies are the people who have the least amount of time, but they're also the people who, um, have spent their lives having this say yes uh, attitude and philosophy. To rise to the top. Yeah. yeah. And it's because they've seized opportunities at every stage. Like things don't all, things that are opportunities don't always present themselves as opportunities. You, you got to go put yourself mm-hmm. out there into a certain context and you might see it as like work. You're like, oh, this is like extra work to do or something like that. Or this is like, an, uh, you know, it feels like a, an obligation or something like that. But by going and doing it and approaching it with the right attitude, all of a sudden you get called up like three months later mm. and, uh, you know, that's turned into something that's clearly an opportunity. And I think it's uh, that that's like that sort of growth mindset versus a fixed mindset, which would tell you, oh, that sounds like work. And, you know, I'd, I'd rather just like, 
stay in and catch up on some rest and yeah. some Netflix or whatever. And yeah, I mean, like for me, just like on a personal level and professional level, um, I'm right now, I guess like the past three months, I've been thinking more about the things that stress me out and the things I'm afraid to do in mm-hmm. my life, like I said, professionally and personally. And I've, instead of running away from those fires, I've actually, I'm trying to shift my mentality into facing them and running into them mm-hmm. and like not necessarily trying to put them out, but just like embracing these things that I'm afraid of or things that I feel like I'm not qualified to do or mm-hmm. good enough to do. Um, and I've, and I've found it's actually wield, yielded someone's like, um, well, for uh, an example is doing this podcast, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I like to think of myself as like a hermit. I just like, I'd rather just be in my studio, but dim lits, mm-hmm. working on music, working on film, editing mm-hmm. or out filming and shooting, mm-hmm. uh, that kind of stuff. Um, so I definitely don't want to do any public speaking and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But I'm like, hey, if I actually challenge myself <laughs> and force myself to do something where it is public speaking and meeting people. Um, and, you know, obviously I think I have something I can offer and connect with people on and share with the world. I think there might be something there. And just since I started this podcast and it's been going for two months, this is episode seven. Mm-hmm. My network has grown just as far as people that I now know and people mm-hmm. that, um, people that I've met are, and the people that they're willing to introduce me to. Um, it's been like astonishing. Yeah. Right. Like just in the past two months by doing the podcast, my network has grown more than it has this past year in total. Yeah. So it's, it's been like a really fantastic networking tool and just like a pretty cool testament to facing the fire and those challenges and just kind of embracing it. Like what you're saying with mm-hmm. like a positive attitude and it might not seem like an opportunity, but it's like just doing those things that kind of scare you. Yeah. I think that's like really important as an artist and a creative and stuff like that. For sure. And yeah, doing the things that scare you also doing the things that motivate you or that, that you're passionate about. I think so often like people know that they're passionate about a thing or they have an idea for a thing. They're like, Oh yeah. Like somebody should do that. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, (laughs) totally. (laughs) I, I, I think like it's so easy to just sort of like pass it off that way for me, like the whole thing that like I, you know, like I was saying a little bit earlier, uh, I started my career in banking out of school. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then I, I moved over to TIFF and my first job at TIFF was, um, you know, sort of an executive uh, executive assistant capacity. Um, and the whole way that I was able to get from that into digital um, at TIFF was because I took something uh, outside of work that was just like, purely just a, a, like a passion and an interest. Mm. I was sitting around with my roommates uh, and we were talking about what the best Kanye West song was of all time. <laughs> and we were just like, we were in like a furious argument about it. Yeah. And we were like, we were like, okay, it is hard to pick one, but we we're like, there's gotta be a system for this. And so we decided let's make a bracket right now. And so we started like drawing up all, like, all the songs. We're like, okay, what 64 songs do you start with? And then how do you whittle it down? Okay. And we went through all the matchups. We're like, no, it's got to be this one over this one. Okay. And then we like went round by round <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> and we, and, and we got to, we got to run away as like the best Kanye song of all time. And so going through that process, we were like, well, this is super fun. And then we were, we were like, 
uh, I think it was my roommate, Ryan, uh, Ryan McCollman, who was like, we should put this on the internet. Um, and he, he was a, a dev and, uh, and, but he was like sort of at that stage, pretty early on in learning coding skills and whatever. And he was like, I can, I can build the site. And I was at that stage, just figuring out my way around design and design work. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'll design it. Um, and, uh, my other roommate, Kyle, I was like, you know, he, he, he and I said we would work on the content. And what we, our idea was is that you're going to see this bracket and then you'll see um, you'll see the winner of each matchup. And when you click on uh, when you click on the, the winner, you'll see like a little write up of like why we picked this one over the other one okay. or whatever. Right. Yeah. So really simple concept for a site. Um, but we we're like, that is that's the number of write-ups that is for the number of matchups. <laughs> uh, like there's no way that we could write those ourselves, yeah. like that, that many ourselves. So we started reaching out to a bunch of writers and then we, we realized uh, before, actually before we even reached out to the writers, we were like the best time to put this out would be during March Madness. But March Madness was like 10 days away from starting. And so we were like, <laughs> we were like, let's, let's just do it. So we just did it. We spent like every hour outside of work. We'd come home from work and I'd like work through the night, just kind of like <laughs> making That's this awesome. stuff. We rolled it out. Uh, we got all these writers who were like recommended to us through friends and friends and that kind of thing together. And I ended up, I realized years later, I was like, this masthead that we assembled for this is actually an extremely dope list of writers <laughs> who were like, cool. I can't believe that they worked with us, but they were all just like, oh yeah, I love Kanye. Like I'll write, like, you know, free 150 words for you, whatever. Um, and so they all annotated this thing for, with us and, and for us. And, um, the, the day we launched, we launched like the first round, uh, we were like the fader wrote about us, um, noisy ended up writing about us vice and, uh, like a bunch <laughs> of other websites. Like we were, we got all this coverage. We blew up on Reddit and, uh, I was rolling all of this out on social so I learned about social. I learned about web content. Mm. I, I I learned about how to integrate design in, into all of this stuff. Um, I learned about the back end side from my my buddy Ryan as as he was building it. Um, and that was like when I when I went onto the digital team in my interview, they were like, "What kind of digital work have you done?" That was the most recent thing. It was also probably the coolest thing that I could show mm. uh, that I'd worked on. And most viral. And most viral, <laughs> Doesn't for <hurt>. sure. And <laughs> and they were like, okay, well, you've made something go viral and and we haven't. So, yeah. um, so <laughs> we need you. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, you. I, granted, you've only done it once, but, uh, but hey. Like, mm. um, so, I mean, that's a long anecdote to just kind of get back to what you were saying, which is that like, I find so often... Uh, you know, it, w- it would have been so easy for us to be like, to, to make that bracket and be like, cool, whatever. And and then for Ryan to say, um, w- we should put this on the internet and for us to be like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's fine. You know, we've had our debate now, but mm-hmm. like it, it led to something really cool, like for us personally, but then also it sent me on this whole career trajectory after that. Yeah. And that's an amazing story. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so just to wrap it up, uh, I want to end with a bit of a bang. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what What do you think is the key to get 
um, people to care about something. As far as being an artist, you know, putting out your own films, putting out your own work, um, building a product, launching it, just as far as in your perspective on digital, digital marketing, marketing. Um, I mean, I have my own antidotes, my own kind of things that I like to do. Um, but I'd like to throw it over to you. What do you think? I think passion finds passion. Um, if something is made with a lot of passion, mm -hmm. uh, it's going to find a, a passionate audience out there. Um, you know, so if I take it back to the bracket example, mm -hmm. um, we made that purely with passion, you know, like there was no motivation other than just like a love of Kanye's music behind it. <laughs> and like, it found people who love Kanye's music, mm. um, everywhere, you know? And, yeah. um, and I think that was, it was my first experience with, uh, what works in digital content and still the thing that I think about all the time for that reason, um, is, you know, if your reasons for making the thing stay pure and stay mm. about like, you know, if you use your internal compass about like, is this something I really care about? Is mm -hmm. this something that I'm passionate about? Um, then the way that that piece of content is crafted is going to exude that passion and it's going to reach people. Mm. That's fantastic advice. Thanks, man. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Big shout out to Sal for being so awesome and for taking the time to chat with me in the studio today. You can find him on Instagram at dat Sal Patel. I always include the appropriate links in the show notes. If this is your first time listening to Workshop, welcome. Nice to have you here. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and leave a rating on iTunes. It really helps me out a ton. And if you know someone that could use a little inspiration today or want some insight into the digital marketing world, send them this episode. I'm sure it will help them out a lot. Workshop is part of the Lossless Podcast Network, a production studio and podcast network based in Toronto. I'm Ryan Freeman, filmmaker and music composer. Thank you for listening to Workshop. Thank you.